Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crowdsourcing Sustainability Podcast. Today, we are lucky enough to be with Dr. Eliza Nemzer and Gabrielle Jorgensen from Climate Changemakers, which is an organization that is helping people who care about climate to take simple, effective actions once a week alongside others in the community, and no experience or prep is required. Eliza is the executive director and co-founder of Climate Changemakers, and Gabrielle is the advocacy director. So Eliza and Gabrielle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, of course, this will be fun. Um, So we'll be talking about climate change makers and the awesome work your community is doing. And then we're going to dive into some of the big climate policies that are up in the air right now in the U.S., like the reconciliation bill, eliminating fossil fuel subsidies, no new fossil fuel projects, and hopefully we get to democracy reform as well. But I'd love to start by hearing your climate stories. So when did you start caring about climate and why? And what did your path look like from that moment up to where you are now at Climate Change Makers? Great question. Um, I'll, I'll dig in first. So I'm a geoscientist. Um, and from a young age, I wanted to study earth science. And I got a PhD and I did a postdoc and I worked for 10 years um, as in earthquake hazards. So I, I basically got really interested in, you know, where physical problem of earthquakes and uh, intersects with the societal risk um, and the risk to human life. So uh, I, I, wor- I worked on trying to address and analyze earthquake hazards for a long time. Um, my work became less and less about natural earthquakes and how to mitigate the risk to critical structures, um, and more and more about earthquakes that were induced by the oil and gas industry, and how to help them mitigate that risk, um, and of course, still maximize profit. So I also became a parent somewhere along that road of uh, being an earthquake scientist and starting to move into uh, the study of induced earthquakes and and working with oil and gas companies. And I just became more and more concerned about about the climate emergency and the world that my kids and all the other kids were inheriting, the air they were breathing. Um, I kind of hit a wall with it about four or five years ago and just decided that the work I was doing how it was becoming too misaligned with my values and I needed to shift gears. Um, I, I also realized that, it, you know, we can characterize the climate crisis using science, but we can't solve it using science. I realized more and more that it's a political problem. So I started paying attention to U.S. politics and noticed and and came upon LCB scores. So the League of Conservation Voters uh, keeps track of how members of Congress vote on environmental legislation. And I realized like, wow, this is really just math. You know, do we have the votes to advance transformative climate legislation or or do we not? And more than math, this is about elections. Um, So I realized to really have an impact, I needed to focus on electing uh, folks who were going to champion science-based policy. So I started organizing for climate candidates um, independently. And then I started working with the NRDC Action Fund as a consulting strategist and advocate. I realized that you don't actually have to be a climate scientist to work on the climate problem. I was cheating a little, right? Because I'm an earth scientist. I 
probably know more about climate science than your average person, but you also don't need to be a professional advocate to advocate, right? So I started getting more and more involved in the real work that we have in front of us, which is pushing for more leadership. Um, and I started to think about how do we put more people in touch with this real work, right? Because again, like this doesn't need to be your day job. Um, and so Climate Change Makers is kind of uh, an outgrowth of that work that I had been doing about a year ago, met a couple folks who basically said, what exactly are you doing and how do we scale that? Um, and then, and they were startup guys. So this was kind of a, a startup mindset. How do we really scale this work of creating, of mobilizing more people, pulling them in, turning them into a change maker, turning them into change makers, effective advocates, and then in turn, pushing our elected leaders, our business leaders to be climate change makers. Like we just need more climate change makers. So let's, let's do that. Um, and, and that's how we got started. And we incorporated as a, an actual nonprofit just recently in June of 2021. Um, Congrats. Yeah. So that, that takes me, that takes me to today. Amazing. And how about you, Gabrielle? Um, so I, you don't have to be a professional advocate to, to advocate on climate, but I am a professional advocate. Um, and I was actually focused primarily on foreign policy and international politics and was in grad school when the Paris Agreement was negotiated. And I think that was a real turning point for me where Previously, I just hadn't really been focused on international climate movements or international climate negotiations. And I just had this moment where I was like, this is the thing that all of the world governments should be focusing on above anything else. And I felt remiss not to kind of dive more into that issue and start reorienting a lot of my foreign affairs education toward a climate lens. And so I ended up writing a master's thesis on fossil fuel subsidies, and I really dove into it when I was in school. But then my first couple jobs kind of took me back away from the climate lens for a while. And I worked on political advocacy on a couple different issues. I worked on um, lifting the embargo on Cuba, worked on some healthcare issues. Um, and then about a year ago, I started really feeling this weight of climate concern um, a lot because of what was happening in the news, but also because I had never really acted upon that initial spark that I had um, when the Paris Agreement was negotiated. And I really wanted to return to using that frame in you know, directing all of my advocacy work toward that issue. And so I started meeting with a lot of folks who work in the climate space and tried to learn as much as I could about the science and eventually found climate change makers right after Eliza and her initial founding team had gotten it off the ground. And I just joined as a volunteer to help with election organizing because I just needed a way to keep myself occupied and sane in the few months before the election of 2020. And then after the election, I um, began talking to Eliza about next steps in terms of policy advocacy for the group. So that's where we are now. That is awesome. And could one of you tell me a bit more about climate change makers and sort of the theory of change behind it? Sure. Um, so 
the theory of change is that there are a lot of people who are very concerned about climate and not engaged in really political solutions. And in fact, there's polling from the Yale Center on Climate Communication, Climate Change Communications, saying that in fact, 29% of Americans, quote, would, would definitely or probably take political action on climate if asked by someone they like and respect, and 1% are doing it. So 29 minus one leaves 28% of Americans willing to take political action on climate and in essence, waiting to be asked, right? Yeah. So, so how do we connect those folks to the real work, which is not signing petitions. It's like effective advocacy. So how, how do, and there's not really a mechanism to do that, right? So I think um, there's a lot of people who want to be productively engaged, don't know where to plug in. And what we're doing at Climate Change Makers is building this welcoming, inclusive community where we just warmly welcome folks, meet them where they are and help them discover how they can be effective climate change makers. And in turn, that, you know, it like emanates out from them. They inspire folks around them. So there's definitely a lot of relational organizing involved in our, in our theory of change. But our scope of work is two-pronged, and I kind of hinted at it before. We take on electoral work to support climate champions, and we take on policy advocacy work. Um, so it's all, and we do a whole ton of organizing to accomplish both of those objectives. It's all towards the end of passing like big transformative uh, policies that will help us decarbonize as fast and um, in as just of a way as, as humanly possible. I love it. And so needed. Um, I did the quick math in my head there. That's almost a hundred million people who are willing and waiting to be asked to do something and just kind of sitting on the sidelines right now, which is mind boggling. It is. And you know, what's buried in there is we need more askers doing the asking, right? And so that's a big piece of what, what we're doing at Climate Change Makers. We're trying to cultivate more askers. Yeah. The courage to, to speak up and spread that through your networks. Absolutely. Um, so could you give me some examples of the actual work that people do when they sign up and do you have any favorite success stories so far? Um, I can give some examples. So on the advocacy front, we have developed a month long, roughly month long, it may evolve into a two month long arc, but it's basically a theory where you start from this building block level of being able to put climate advocacy into your own words, take a policy issue and kind of find yourself in it. And that in theory will give you the confidence to really speak from the heart as Eliza alluded to um, and really speak about it in a way that touches the people in your community or whoever your audience is in your relational organizing efforts. Um, and so an example of that might be um, personalizing your talking points. So we provide issue briefings on whatever this monthly or bi-monthly issue priority is. So for example, you mentioned no new fossil fuel projects in your intro. That's an example of one of our issue priorities. And we'll create an issue briefing that has generic talking points, you know, reasons why one might support that policy. Um, but 
invite our volunteers to then take those talking points and frame them through whatever lens resonates with them. So if you're a nurse, you might frame it through a public health lens. If you're a veteran, you might frame it through a national security lens. Um, so whichever one speaks to you. And so we take an hour kind of drafting those personal messages. And the idea is like they'd be used as a bedrock for other advocacy actions. Um, another thing we do is so the, in the second week, our theme is reaching out to policymakers. So we might send, take those personalized talking points and write a really unique personalized email to send to your members of Congress, depending on what the issue is. It may be just your house reps, just your senators, maybe both depends on what's going on in Congress. Um, and then also adapting that into a phone script so that you can call the office and inject some personalization and emotion when you're talking to the staffer who answers the phone in the office. Um, and then we have a themed week around key stakeholders. And I really like this one because I think the influence of key stakeholders can kind of be underrepresented in advocacy because key stakeholders really have the ear of these policymakers and these decision makers in a way that we may not as, as average citizens. And so we spend some time, depending on the issue, reaching out to people with whom we might have some leverage. So maybe we're customers at a bank or customers of a utility company, and we can call them from that position of being customers and say, like, you know, I really you really should support openly this policy of eliminating fossil fuel subsidies or whatever it may be um, urge, you know, we'll create public amplification by tweeting at them. We'll send them emails. Um, we also have a breakout room during that week where people can write LTEs letters to the editor or op-eds to try to amplify the policy issue within maybe their local paper um, and, and kind of spread the message that way. And then we also host a couple actions where people can talk directly with policymakers. So this is kind of like the next step after the calling and writing to the office. So we'll either host a policymaker live on Zoom, which we've done several times with members of Congress. Um, and so that's an, that's an opportunity, kind of, kind of like a town hall where the participants on the call can ask them questions directly about the policy issue and engage in a dialogue. And we've actually gotten some commitments to co-sponsor legislation that way, which is live on our Zoom, which was wow. pretty cool. Um, but in months where we don't have a guest like that, um, we will have an hour where we learn how to schedule meetings with congressional staff. And we've had several volunteers already, this, this, this action is fairly new, but we've had several volunteers already sit and do virtual meetings with congressional staff and also get some commitments to co-sponsor the bills through that medium as well. So I think that one is a really, cool i mean it, it's complicated right because it's it it's a big deal to meet with a member of congress and so um there are a lot of steps involved during the hour but i think it has a really particularly rewarding outcome that is incredible <laughs> uh super important work and really cool that you're you know facilitating people getting in touch with their congress people and i especially like these town halls where you're getting commitments live. That is, that's awesome. Um, I am curious just 
I don't know if you can do this in a minute or not, but that very first part that you mentioned, people personalizing the story. Do you have any advice for folks on how to do that? I would say think of the space that you occupy and how you identify yourself. So maybe it's your profession, maybe it's your relationship to other people, like you identify as a parent or a a granddaughter or whatever relational space you occupy, Um, your geographic area, maybe you live in a coastal city, maybe you live in an agricultural society where, not society, but an agricultural community where you've been experiencing drought lately, kind of orient yourself relationally and geographically and vocationally and think about all of the ways that climate change could really touch your life in any of those circles. Um, And once you do that, I think adapting that statement to a specific policy issue is easy because the types of policies that we take on at Climate Change Makers are these really broad, low-hanging fruit. You know, they, they have to be reducing emissions. They have to lead to a just and equitable society. But beyond that, they're not super complicated, controversial policy issues. And so I think if you have your, if you've oriented your reason for caring about climate change in that personalized way, you can then just pretty simply connect it to the policy issue and say, you know, therefore we can't be supporting fossil fuels with direct subsidies um, and kind of like make, have that link be the last step in the process. That's awesome. Very good advice. Thank you. Um, And I'm curious if someone is listening right now and they, they want to get involved, how should they go about doing that? And what does that look like? I think you, you may have already said some of these steps already, but for someone who's about to, to join y'all in this community, what is that going to look like for them? Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to answer that. I first want to back up just a, a, just a step and, and, and share that the type, the work that goes into finding yourself in a policy, you know, like figuring out your why, why you care, how the, how it impacts you. Um, that is incredibly important work in part because there are empirical data showing um, that in terms of an, an end goal of influencing decision maker opinion, policymaker opinion in many cases, uh, what works is personalized, authentic messages. And what doesn't work is high volumes of generic messages. So, you know, tens of thousands of email communications that are exactly the same signed by different people pales in comparison to the value in terms of actually moving policymaker pay. So there's actually a body of research there. It also really just helps you become a more effective communicator in your daily life and, and then do that work of getting the people around you to care more and, 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 and be more motivated to, to join in as a change maker. Um, so yeah, we, again, like we're really, or we're focused on meeting everyone where they are. So there are first time brand new advocates in our community and there are a long time, there are even professional advocates in our, in our community, uh, like Gabrielle and even folks who work in the climate space who just want to do more beyond their day job. 
we have a you know, good number of actual climate scientists as well who just don't have a productive outlet for doing this work. Um, so our invitation, so here's the thing, effective advocacy takes longer than a couple of clicks. It just does, right? Like we're not going to solve this problem by clicking. It's <laughs> just, just, you know, you need to put a little skin in the game. This actually takes time. It does not have to be your day job, but it takes longer than a couple clicks. So we kind of, our, our cornerstone strategy is this idea of, are you willing to spend an hour a week? Take an hour of action, an hour of action. So we cram as much productive work into our hours of action as humanly possible. So, um, and we have, as Gabrielle mentioned, these very robust issue briefings that help people really get a lot of comfort with policy issues. And we have these really uh, approachable and accessible play playbooks for action. And it's all about mixing and, mixing and matching a policy priority with an action playbook. And so we just, the invitation is to join us for an hour of action. That's what it, I mean, it's not a small ask. This is not a low bar ask. I get that, right? We all get that. At the same time, this is the moment where you need to actually like roll up our sleeves and, and get involved. So, so that is what we're, we're doing something different, right? There's not like a, a two minute version. <laughs> it's like, join us for an hour of action. And we're doing all the work to, um, to make this effort scalable. So folks can spin up their own hours of action. Like, so we have all, we've worked to iterate on how to make the hour of action the most welcoming and the most productive and the most uh, kind of community oriented. There's also this tremendous value in taking action in community. You, you, you have this accountability piece, which is incredibly important. And you have this outsized impact, um, collective impact. So we have iterated and, and refined this model of an hour of action. And now we have all of the assets that you need to pull off a successful hour of action, ready to go for you and your pals and you and your book club and you and your colleagues and you and your classmates and you. And, and we're, we're hoping that more and more people who, I mean, the invitation is join us for an hour of action or create your own, like take out this. We need to roll up our sleeves and this is going to have to occupy time. The real work occupies time. So that's the invitation. That is the official ask to those 29% of Americans. Of action. Yeah, well, 28, because 1% are doing it. And, uh, and, and, you know, it doesn't have to be every week, but I think that's the goal. So we're trying to cultivate a habit of civic engagement in the name of climate action. Like really turn, like, think about, we're not in the business of changing minds, right? So we're starting with people who are already very concerned and wanting to get involved. This is a behavior change thing. So introducing a meditation practice or a workout practice, this is a practice of civic engagement towards the end of, of advancing uh, progress on this huge challenge. Awesome. And I think that's a pretty good segue. You said this moment especially is very consequential. Um, so I would love to dive into the reconciliation bill, which is being discussed and debated and negotiated right now. Uh, I think Gabrielle may be better suited for, for this question, but I would just love to hear kind of, for those who don't know, what is the reconciliation bill? What's the context? What's in it? Why does it matter? Um, what's happened so far? And like, where's it going? That's a lot of questions, but just take that and run in whatever direction you'd like to. 
I'll try to make my answer a little more concise than the actual reconciliation <laughs> bill, which is thousands of pages long. Um, so the reconciliation package is called that because it uses a specific type of policymaking called budget reconciliation. And basically what that means is that every provision in that bill has to directly relate to the United States budget. So it's basically leveraging the purse strings of the government in some way. Um, and so this is why you don't see things in it that have to do with issues like abortion and immigration and, and things like that. Those have all been removed from it for not being budget friendly. Um, but this is a giant package. It started out at $3.5 trillion um, and it is being negotiated among the Democrats who control the House and the Senate. So this is not a bipartisan bill. And the reason that we are using budget reconciliation to pass these things is because there is a procedure in the Senate called the filibuster, which means that you have to reach a 60 vote majority to pass any legislation. And Democrats only have 51 votes right now. And right now the Democrats are the only party by and large that are united in passing climate legislation. So for these purposes, I'll I'll talk about the Democrats, um, but they um, can only pass these, can only circumvent the 60 vote filibuster by using budget reconciliation It's kind of immune to that filibuster. Um, and so they have included a whole host of policies in this reconciliation bill, everything from paid family leave and Medicare expansion and Medicaid, um, all the way to climate provisions like a clean electricity performance program, which we can talk about. Um, and so it's this very wide in scope piece of legislation where now the problem is that the entire Democratic Party in the House and the Senate and the president have to agree on the price tag of the bill. And by extension, that means that they have to weigh all these trade-offs between which policies get to stay in the bill and which policies may have to be pared down in some way. Um, and so the timeline for this bill is that it needs to pass in tandem with this other bill that was already passed by the Senate in July that we've been calling the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, you may have heard it referred to as BIF, Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework. Um, and this is a bill that deals a lot with like physical infrastructure, like building roads and bridges. And that has the support of a, a quorum of Republicans to pass it. It's already passed the Senate. Now the House will not vote on that bill until this reconciliation bill follows it, um, because a lot of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is worried that if they pass the infrastructure bill without the other one following it, that we're missing this really crucial window of opportunity to pass all of these massive social programs and climate programs and other things that are in the reconciliation bill. And so all that is to say, it's a really unique time right now so we have no idea what's going to happen in the midterm elections next year. We have no idea if a climate majority will persist in the House um, and maybe the Senate as well. Um, and so we really have a pretty narrow window, especially since a lot of legislators don't like to take big risks when they're running for re-election. So election years are not really a time that you see massive 
uh, pieces of legislation passing like this. And so at Climate Changemakers, we have really been focused on this reconciliation bill. Um, there's a tentative schedule to vote for it on Halloween. We'll see if that if that plays out that way. Um, but we have kind of zeroed in on this clean electricity performance program as a real cornerstone of the climate provisions in the bill based on its projected emissions reductions. It would be alone without all the other really important climate provisions in that bill alone, the CEPP would be the most impactful climate policy that the United States has ever passed at the federal level. So we've really been focused on that, making sure it doesn't get put on the chopping block as they try to negotiate this price tag down. That's awesome. Um, and I just want to put a little or build on this a little bit and just say that just cause I, I researched some numbers and uh, something like 96% of Democrats are ready to sign this as is with the current 3.5 trillion. So it's just this tiny handful of people who are really holding it up. Um, and they really haven't given a reason other than they think it's too much money. Although there are ways that's being paid for by taxing the wealthy and corporations. Um, and ending and then also subsidies, don't forget. That's another huge one I want to see in there. It's an absolute no brainer. Yeah. Is that in there right now or no? No, it's, it's not. Okay. We're pushing for. Wow. Yeah. It, it could save a big chunk of change in over 10 years in that bill. So yeah. we, we've really been pushing for that one as well. It seems like such a no brainer. It just feels like uh, the fossil fuel industry has their tentacles all over many politicians. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say real quick is just, I feel like the biggest blowback on this is that it's a big price tag, but it seems that it's all being paid for. So it's not getting into the debt, the deficit. And then also to put it in perspective, it's half the size of the military budget, which nobody ever questions. And I would argue this is, you know, the biggest threat to the country right now in the world is the climate crisis. So I, I would love to see a different framing when people talk about this and putting it into context. Um, but yeah, so do you have, like, what is your strategy within this for people listening right now? They want to get involved. They want to help get this passed. Like what actions do you have um, coming up that are about this or related? And what's kind of the strategy behind that? Well, um, I can take that. We are, so we take action every week, Ryan, right? We have an hour of action every week. Um, and, and Gabrielle mentioned our, our arc, which is, has to do with shifting the audience that we're advocating with. Um, this week we're focused on policymaker outreach. Next week we're focused on key stakeholder outreach. Um, there are a lot of, and we also work with partners, all the time. We're working actively with Climate Voice um, and we're working on rolling out a partnership that will actually start next week with Drawdown Labs. Um, nice. Yeah, there are a lot of big businesses with a ton of power who exercise that power actively lobbying on a whole host of issues and have been pretty silent and, or neutral as if that's a thing on climate policy. Um, and furthermore, are part of associations like the Chamber of Commerce 
that are, are actively trying to obstruct this potentially transformative uh, climate legislation in this once in a lifetime window of opportunity. So, so when, when folks show up for an hour of action, they have options for actions to take. We always provide options. So there's some choice involved. Um, and, and so one of the things we're doing this week is there's an option to reach our policymakers and or prep for constituent meetings. As Gabrielle mentioned, we have a really good track record of getting co-sponsors on legislation in these constituent meetings um, or reach out to key stakeholders. So we're doing um, an action in partnership with Climate Voice this week, reaching out to 20 big American businesses that are pro-climate, but obstructing this legislation at uh, two different extents. Could be doing much more to champion uh, advancing this legislation. Let's put it that way. Um, and so, and we're working next week, we'll be doing more key stakeholder outreach. That's the theme. And we'll also be working with Drawdown Labs to help folks understand how to become Basically, their ethos is make how, how you can make every job a climate job. So we're working with them uh, to, to flesh out a very concrete set of actions that folks can take to advocate within their workplace. Um, and so there, again, the invitation is to show up for an hour of action. We have... We have a whole, um, like a suite of actions that we take and we plug our priorities in. So right now we are pretty focused on trying to get fossil fuel subsidies into the reconciliation bill. Sorry, a an end, a repeal of tax. <laughs> we don't want to add any new subsidies. <laughs> we want an end to fossil fuel subsidies and incorporating that into reconciliation and also just this big old push for more kind of influence the influencer work to get more big voices, corporations, leaders to champion uh, the Build Back Better Act. Amazing. And yeah, the more, the merrier. I hope folks, more and more folks join you, join you at this critical time. Um, so I see that I might get kicked out of this library room in about four minutes. If we have more time, great. If not, I'd love to just do like a rapid fire uh, on kind of just how y'all are thinking about eliminating these fossil fuel subsidies. Any more details you want to add to that or put into context? Uh, we also mentioned no new fossil fuel projects. So if you wanted to dive into that one. And then the, the last one I have here is, you know, democracy reform and voting rights, which I think still isn't getting nearly enough attention. It feels like a massive threat and kind of underpins a lot of this stuff. Like if we don't get that straightened out, then everything else could also just pretty easily fall apart. Um, so you can start with any one of those, but I'd love to just hear your quick thoughts on each if possible. Sure. So let's start with fossil fuel subsidies since we were already talking about that. So in if you add up all of the direct financial support and indirect you know negative externalities caused by that direct financial support caused by propping up the fossil fuel industry um the total is 649 billion dollars a year just on the part of the u.s government um direct subsidies would more would be closer to 20 billion a year 
Um, and that's just the U.S. And there are countries all around the world who subsidize fossil fuels at a higher rate than the United States does. Um, think of your top oil and gas producing countries, and I'm sure you can name a list of five or ten top subsidizers. Um, and so this is a really frustrating problem because it's basically just rooted in political economy and there's no need to we could reduce emissions by a third globally if every country in the world just ended their fossil fuel subsidies. And there's really no need. You can do that before you even build new energy systems and invest in new technology. All you need to do is change the law and stop diverting funds to this industry. So I find it a particularly frustrating you know, difficult problem to solve because it isn't, it can't be reasoned with logic. It's all based on these like deeply entrenched political systems. Um, but I really like the argument of using it as a pay for in this reconciliation bill because um, everyone wants to save money when they are negotiating for expensive programs. Um, next, I'll talk about democracy reform. So there is going to be a vote Probably on Monday, Senator Schumer has just announced to um, end debate and, and, and open a vote on this Freedom to Vote Act, which will almost certainly fail because of the filibuster, but it really takes great strides to preserve and protect voting rights, um, especially it. If a really important thing is that it ends partisan gerrymandering. So as you know, this is a process of redistricting that causes for some people's votes to count more than others and for people to be categorized in ways that perhaps they shouldn't because it favors one party over another. Um, and so we think that this has really close ties with climate action because we know that majority of voters support climate action. And so if that majority is not being heard and we're being governed by minority rule, which currently we are. I mean, the Senate is not a representative body. Um, we cannot act the way that the majority wants us to. And on top of that, we have all of these campaign finance um, loopholes that fossil fuel companies can take advantage of to really enrich our politicians and kind of hold them, keep them beholden to the industry that's perpetuating climate change. So for all those reasons, democracy reform is super important to the climate movement. I didn't even get into the disproportionate impact on underserved communities um, that will be suffered at the hands of climate change. And obviously a lot of these voting restrictions target those communities. So that's just another reason that it's very closely connected to the climate crisis. Um, we, uh, we spent two months this year advocating on that bill. I think it's a great bill. I'm not super optimistic that it's going to pass next week, but we will definitely tackle that issue again next year if it fails. Um, and then real quick on no new fossil projects, we were advocating for a bill called the Keep It in the Ground Act. That is super simple, saying the federal government should ban drilling and development of all new fossil projects on federal lands and offshore, because that is what the president or the federal government has jurisdiction over. Um, and it's gotten a lot of support, but again, it would it would be held up by the filibuster in the Senate. So we're just trying to find creative ways to bring more co-sponsors on that bill. And that's probably not a, an issue for reconciliation, but that's something we'll continue to work on next year as well, because we see that as a pretty no-brainer policy. Thank you for that. That was super helpful. That I mean that I, that that was super detailed and and yet succinct. The one thing that it was missing is is, but I think we've kind of 
gone there already, but the thread that ties all of these policy priorities together, of course, is that these are all no brainer and they're high leverage and they're low hanging fruit and they are all based in science and they center justice. And when you look through that lens and create a filter like that to decide which policies to advocate for, um, you can do this highly political work. I mean, we are unapologetically political at Climate Change Makers, but we are not partisan. And when you create a lens like that, a filter for deciding which policies to champion and advocate for, you, you can just park the partisan rhetoric at the door. And, and it, it sure seems like it would be quite helpful if more people did that. And by the way, we do that with our electoral work as well. So we go to bat for uh, basically the bigger climate champion in any race where it's clear cut. And when you do that, again, you just using a climate lens on elections and there's really no need. So we do as much as we can. We park that rhetoric at the door. As Gabrielle mentioned, there are no Republicans planning to vote for the Build Back Better plan. That's the reality. You know, we, we, we hope that that changes and we can have more and more climate champions um, on that side of the aisle. But it definitely um, this work can be done through a nonpartisan lens. And we feel very strongly that we do that. We are doing this work to protect our futures, not to advance one political party. And the idea of politicize, you know, making this about party politics or weaponizing climate as, as a partisan issue, that serves, that doesn't serve anyone. So we, we, we feel really strongly um, that you can take on all of this work and get very engaged in political work and yet do it through a non, with a nonpartisan ethos. Yeah. And I think, I don't know about all of these, but I'm pretty sure everything we just talked about is extremely popular, like has a majority of public support across uh, the spectrum of, of parties. Do you guys happen to know the, the numbers on anything other than the reconciliation bill? I know that one has like 63% support or something like that. I know democracy reform generally is around two thirds. Um I think the clean electricity standard is higher than that. Um, just a general like shift to clean energy by tw- or clean electricity by 2030 is even higher than two thirds. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty um, frustrating that, as I mentioned, the majority will is not necessarily being reflected in our political system, as as is frequently the case across other policy issues as well. But yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of represent us. I think they're called. Yeah, and we've partnered with them. And uh, yeah, awesome. Yeah. Love that. Yep. I had one other thing. Oh, so the other thing that I just want to bring up, and I, I don't know. I maybe we have slightly different philosophies, but I kind of just I'm an independent, and so I just feel free to criticize both parties. What is up with the filibuster? Like, why are there just like a couple people now, Mansion and Cinema, holding up getting rid of that? Or do you know where that stands? Because it feels like if we got rid of that, a lot more could get done. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of 
good arguments on both sides of that. So some people say, well, we shouldn't eliminate the filibuster because that will just, you know, Senator McConnell has threatened that if we remove the filibuster now, wait till we see what a scorched earth, I think he used the term scorched earth Senate um, in the hands of the Republican Party would do to to decimate all of the Democratic past policies during this Senate. Um, and so I think that type of rhetoric scares off senators like Manchin and Cinema from taking a risk, whereas I think the view of a lot of other Democrats in the Senate right now is that they're more risk willing because they have felt beholden to this stalemate of inaction for so long that they just feel like we might as well pass everything we can right now. And then if they want to undo it, make them try. I think that's the mentality of a lot of Democrats. Um, but yeah, Manchin and Cinema are the two big ones. There are a few other um, moderate Democratic senators who haven't really said either way. Um, they're certainly not gung-ho opposed to eliminating the filibuster, but they they don't really come out in support of it either. They kind of just wait and see what happens. Um, but I definitely don't feel optimistic that we would eliminate the filibuster. I think it's more likely that we might amend the rule maybe to not apply the filibuster to certain types of policy. So for example, we don't have a filibuster for federal judge confirmations anymore. So Senate can really write whatever rules it wants. That is helpful. And then the last thing that is kind of bouncing around in my mind right now is I feel like part of the reason the voting rights and democracy reform is getting pushback is because it's getting rid of dark money in politics. And so you have Congress people on both sides who are getting supported uh, by these special interest lobbying groups. And it seems, or at least my speculation is they have an issue with that because this is a revenue stream for them. Do you, do you see that at all? I think that's part of it. The compromise legislation, the Freedom to Vote Act, doesn't go quite as far as the original For the People Act. Um, it just has some campaign trans campaign finance transparency requirements, but it's not it doesn't go as far as the original one. So I think now, I mean, that's part of the issue. But I think also there is a fear on behalf of a lot of Republican members of Congress that they would be seen as overstepping like federal overreach onto states ability to legislate their own voting rules. And I think that the Republican Party is in a place right now where they really want the support of these partisan election officials at the state level. And so they don't want to interfere with the laws that are being passed in the states. All right. So we have to wrap up. I would love to just hear any final message that you have for folks or advice or call to action. And, uh, Let's start with Eliza. Okay. Um, we all need to get involved and be part of the solution. And as complicated as these policies might sound, you do not need to be a policy expert to be an effective advocate. Right. So definitely we all need to vote, but those of us who are really climate conscious, climate concerned need to do more than vote. Um, so that's what we're about at Climate Change Makers. It's like we're 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 the voters plus, and we really need many more folks who are voters plus, much more civically engaged 
in the name of climate action. This is a political problem for all the reasons we've just described. Um, there's a way to take political action that is nonpartisan. Do it in community. It helps a lot with anxiety. You asked before about any really uh, like zero to hero stories. We have tons of zero to hero stories. We have folks who have you know called their member for the first time, met with congressional staff, or gotten co-sponsors on bills gotten a letter to the editor published, never written one before, gotten an op-ed published, you know, in a- We had uh, someone, we had someone tweeted a CEO and he offered to give her a call and yeah. discuss her yeah. outreach on the policy issue. Oh yeah. No, so there's, and there, and really like people need to not be intimidated to get involved. And that's what we're trying to create a climate change paper. Yeah, we just, uh, we need a, a culture of engagement. And so if you, you know, plug in with another group, you know, plug in, plug in with some plug in somewhere and climate change makers is, you know, an invitation. If you don't know where else to plug in, plug in with us. Um, and I imagine it in, in oftentimes will lead to, to great things. I mean, really. So just taking down the expectation that you really need to have a PhD or be a professional um, expert on this. There's, you could, there's a very, there's a way to slice it where it's, this is not complicated. This is, there's a plenty of no brainer territory. So playing in that no brainer territory, you can have a very big impact. Very. There's not a lot of people taking action. And so I think there's an expectation that other people kind of have this under control. It is not under control. So, so join us and become a climate change maker. We, we need a lot more climate change makers um, to get where we need to go. So hundred percent. Well said. Gabrielle? The only thing I would add is that public officials, elected officials are not scary or intimidating. I think a lot of people have this idea that there's a really wide gulf between constituents and the people who represent them. And most members of Congress and certainly most state legislators and mayors and city councilors are doing that job because they have this civic-minded personality and ethos. And yes, some some politicians get corrupted down the road, but most of them are starting out from a place where they genuinely want to act on your behalf and they want to hear what you have to say and they want to do their job well. And I think eliminating this fear that, you know, if you meet with a member of Congress or their staff, you might say the wrong thing or you're not qualified, you're not a scientist, can't speak technically. I really want to eliminate and dispel that myth because these people are approachable and they they will listen to you. That is a great note to end on. Uh, thank you both so much for taking the time to chat and for the amazing work you're doing. Uh, for people listening, I'll put the relevant links in the show notes so you can get linked up. And yeah, thank you again. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for the important work you're doing. Um, it's also a huge, huge contribution. So thank you for, for that. I know you're working hard and, and doing big things. And thanks for, thanks for inviting us and for the conversation. Yeah, really appreciate it, Ryan. You're a change maker too. Yeah, see? <laughs> You need Love to just it. join an hour of action next. That's, we'll see you next on an hour of action. You know, I am planning to do that. I will see you there. Oh, excellent. I can't wait. Cool. All right. Have a good one. Thanks, All guys. Right, take care. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.